Well, if you'd like to turn back to Joshua 20, uh, we're going to spend a few minutes this morning thinking uh, a little bit about that passage. If you were with us a few weeks ago, when we were last looking at the book of Joshua, you may remember that I observed (coughs) that the book of Joshua is like a play that's in two halves. Chapters 1 to 11 comprise Act 1, and they describe all the, uh, <clears throat> the events of how the Israelites conquered the promised land. It contains those stories that many of you may know from your childhood, episodes like crossing the Jordan on the dry land, uh, Rahab hiding the, the, the spies, the destruction of Jericho with the walls tumbling down after uh, the Israelites circled it uh, seven days. The first act concludes with these words, the land rested from war. And then we saw that as we move on into chapter 13, it's as if we're in the second half of the play. And this time, rather than being an account of how the Israelites conquered the land, the second half of the book is an account of how the Israelites received the land from God and then settled in it, into the land that had been promised to them. And in chapters 13 to 19, we find a a long narrative describing the apportionment of the land, how a portion was given to each of the tribes. But if you're with us last time, I hope you're able to see that the promised land was just a type, a picture pointing us to the inheritance that we have as Christians. We don't need an inheritance comprising of material possessions. No, this, this, this passage showed us that we had something far better If we're Christians, then like the Levites, our inheritance is to be found in God himself. If we're Christians, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and our salvation in him is more precious than anything, anything that the world can offer us. Well, this morning, we're coming to the end of this section, which recounts how the land was allotted to the various tribes. And we saw last time that although land was allotted to each of the tribes in turn, there was one tribe which didn't receive a portion of land, and that was the tribe of the Levites. They didn't receive an inheritance as the other tribes did because they were told that God himself was their inheritance. But although they didn't have a a portion of land to live in, they still needed somewhere to live. And so in chapter 21, we read how specific cities were given to them. Those cities were uh, taken from each of the other tribes, and so the Levites lived intermingled amongst all the other people. So turning to chapter 20, we find that six of these cities, six of these Levitical cities, are highlighted specifically. And we're told in verse 7, aren't we, 
sorry, not verse 7. Um, yeah, that these, these six cities in verse 7, that they were set aside for a special purpose. They're set aside as cities of refuge. Well, Joshua didn't just take it upon himself to designate these six cities. cities. He didn't have a, a sudden idea to do this. God had told the Israelites uh, through Moses to set these cities apart. And that's why um, in verse 1 we're told uh, that, uh, that God said to Joshua, appoint the cities as I spoke to you through Moses previously. And the instruction is given in Numbers 35, and then it's repeated again in Deuteronomy 19, just before the children of Israel enter into the promised land. Well, we'll have a, spend a few minutes thinking about these cities of refuge this morning, and we do so under three headings. Firstly, the need for a refuge. Secondly, the place of refuge. And then thirdly, the means of refuge, the need of refuge, the place of refuge, and then the means of refuge. Look then at verses one to three. The Lord said to Joshua, say to the people of Israel, appoint the cities of refuge of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the manslayer who strikes a person without intent or unknowingly may flee there. They shall be for you a refuge from the avenger of blood. Now we know from observing the world around us that people are particularly incensed if one person kills another. And quite rightly so. Society considers it the worst of crimes. Perhaps that's not surprising because when we turn to the scriptures, we find that the very earliest recorded incidents of murder invoked a severe penalty from God on the perpetrator. For in Genesis 4, the Lord calls Cain to account after he killed Abel. And although society has a widespread neglect for God today, and, and has sometimes quite a lot of animosity towards things Christian. Society still reflects something of God's standard of justice in this matter. Most people would agree murder is something very serious which needs to be punished. And in Genesis chapter 9, just after the floodwaters have subsided, God makes a covenant with Noah. And there we find an explanation as to why killing another is a far more serious crime than anything else. From verse 6 of Genesis chapter 9, we read, Whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God... Has God made mankind? Taking a life is certainly a bad thing for society. But you see, there's a deeper offense carried out when someone kills someone else. Genesis 9.6 tells us that men and women are special because we've been made in the image of God. 
Now, if you take a photograph of somebody and you deface it, you'd be expressing contempt for the person whose photograph it is. So in the same way, if you abuse a man or a woman, you're not just hurting that person, you're also abusing the image of God. And whether you realize it or not, it's an action that indicates a contempt for God himself. One 18th century theologian put it like this. To deface the king's image is a sort of treason, implying hatred against him. How much more heinous, then, must it be to destroy, curse, oppress, or in, in, in any way abuse the image of the king of kings, of God himself? Killing, then, is an act of contempt against the one in whose image the person was made. It's an act of rebellion against God himself. Taking the life of another is such a serious matter then that the verse in Genesis 9-6 required that the person who committed that offence should be put to death as well. And indeed, back in Numbers 33, 35, 33, when Moses first gave instructions about the city of refuge, God says this. He says, blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that's shed in it, except by the blood of the one who shed it. So serious then was the offense of killing another that for ancient Israel it could only be put right by the death of the perpetrator. Well, in ancient Israel, the execution of this judgment was to be carried out by a person who is described in verse 3 as the avenger of blood. And we lose some of the significance of this in our English translation. Because in the Hebrew... It's rendered goal dama. The word goal is translated elsewhere in the Bible as kinsman redeemer. As God's people first settled in their promised land, it was decreed that a, a goal or a kinsman redeemer had to come to the aid of a relative in distress. If they'd fallen into debt, for example, the kinsman redeemer was a close relative who would provide the financial wherewithal to resolve the situation. They might be a brother or an uncle or a cousin. Perhaps you remember the story of Ruth, Ruth and Boaz. Boaz was a distant relative who became a goal for Ruth. For these Israelites at the time of Joshua then, the Goal was the one God had appointed to pay off the debt, to rescue the relative, to put things right. Well, here in verse 3, we have not just a Goal, but a Goal Damar. The person is described as an avenger of blood. This then is a, a close relative 
who was required by God to put things right. Why say all this? Well, when we read in verse 3 of an avenger of blood, we must not think of a hot-headed reaction to murder. This wasn't simply someone taking matters into their own hands. Not someone just wanting to get their own back. Rather, the avenger of blood is a goal damar, someone who had a solemn duty given by God, who was required to execute God's judgment on the one who had killed another. We need to ask a question, don't we? How should we apply this passage to ourselves? Time and again in the book of Joshua, we've seen that it presents types or pictures of spiritual realities. The types or pictures in the narrative point us to a greater reality. Who then does the avenger of blood, the Goal Damar, point us to? Well, in Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, we hear recorded the voices of martyred saints. These are Christians who've died. And there they cry out, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge blood? These are the saints made perfect in heaven. And you see what they're doing? They're calling for judgment and vengeance against sin. But that's not all. Do you see who they are addressing? Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge? Strange though that it may seem, the avenging of blood in Joshua chapter 20 verse 3 points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is the Lord Jesus who will execute God's judgment on those who destroy, curse, oppress, or in any way abuse the image of the King of Kings. Do you know the hymn, At the Name of Jesus, Every Knee Shall Bow? It speaks, doesn't it, of all bowing before Christ. There will be those who bow in, hum- in worship and adoration, and there will be those who bow in a, sta- in a position of judgment. I always think it's a really inappropriate tune that is sung to that hymn because it's so jolly, but it's actually a really serious, serious event that's being described. So you see, whether it's intentional or not, the Bible tells us that the Lord Jesus Christ will execute judgment on all who rebel against a sovereign God. In the book of Romans, Paul tells us that we all, like sheep, have gone our own way, and we're all described as being the enemies of God. And that leads us to a surprising conclusion, doesn't it? There is a sense in which the one to whom the avenger of blood points must exercise his justice on us all, 
And indeed, the Lord Jesus Christ must do so, for he must right the wrong that we have done in our rebellion against God. Friends, in Hebrews 10.31, we're told that it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So you see, in one sense, we all need a refuge from the Lord Jesus Christ. We all need a refuge from the avenger of blood. We will all need a refuge for the one who will pursue us to execute justice for our sin. Well, if that's the need that we have for a refuge, let's look and find the place of that refuge. And we see that in verses 4 to 5. He, the manslayer, shall flee to one of these cities and shall stand at the entrance of the gate of the city and explain his case to the elders of that city. And then they shall take him into the city and give him a place and he shall remain with them. And if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not give up the manslayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unknowingly and did not hate him. In the past. Do you know the God of the Bible is revealed to us as being a God of justice, one who in his holiness hates sin with a perfect hatred. But the Lord is also revealed in the Bible as a God of mercy, one who reaches out to us in our desperate need reaches out to us in our helplessness and does what we cannot possibly manage to do ourselves. It's for that very reason that um, in Psalm 40, when we sing often here, the psalmist writes in a, a passive tense, doesn't he? It says, it's God who heard his cry. It's God who raised him up from the slimy pit. It's God who pulls him free. And it's God who puts his feet on a solid rock. And it's God who puts a new song in his mouth. The psalmist, you see, didn't contribute anything. It was all done by God. Well, in God's mercy, the justice of the avenger of blood is tempered in the situation we have described here, uh, which is effectively a case of manslaughter. One where the death of another rises through accident. Here in verse 5, we're told that the city of refuge is for someone who kills without forethought or malice. In Deuteronomy 19, when the original instruction is given, it's also made clear that the cities of refuge are for those who kill someone unintentionally or accidentally. Um, A practical example is given in those verses of someone who goes out to chop wood. And as they're chopping wood, the the head of his axe flies off the handle and strikes someone so that he dies. And then the perpetrator is told there in Deuteronomy 19 to flee to the city of refuge. He's got to run there. And we're told in this passage that Six of these cities of refuge were to be established, three on the right-hand side of the Jordan and three on the left-hand side of the Jordan. And if you look at the map and see these places, you'll see that they were, they were distributed evenly 
throughout the land. They could be reached, you see, easily if someone needed to. And in Deuteronomy 19, we're told that roads were to be constructed so that you could get there quickly. So that anyone who was in this unfortunate position could flee quickly to safety. But again, we need to ask a question, don't we? How do we apply this passage to ourselves? Do the types or pictures in the narrative point to a greater reality? What or who does the city of refuge point us to? And again, doesn't it point us to the Lord Jesus Christ? Not this time as the avenger of blood executing justice, but as the saviour offering refuge Time and again, the psalmist speaks of God as being our refuge. Isn't that what we just sung about in Psalm 31? In verse 1, where are we? Verse 1, in you I have taken refuge, O Lord. You are my shelter in distress. And in verse 8, uh, you have set my feet within a spacious place where I may stand, not fearful, Verse 4 is quite remarkable, isn't it? See that? He shall flee to one of these cities. He shall explain his case to the elders. And then they shall take him in and give him a place. And they shall remain with him. You see, they weren't just keeping the avenger of blood at bay. They gave him a home. They took him in. They provided for him. But in thinking of the cities of refuge as the place of salvation in Christ, there are a couple of important lessons for us to learn from the passage. Firstly, in verse 5, we're told that the city was a refuge for the unintentional manslayer. It was not to be a refuge for a premeditated murderer. There was to be a refuge, you see, for unintentional sin, but not for one who deliberately chose to do that which God said was wrong. I suspect we've all been in situations, haven't we, where we've been faced with a temptation to sin, where we've needed to make a choice about what we're going to do, whether to speak a truth or whether to speak a lie, whether to linger on an impure image, or whether to move on, whether to attend church or give it a miss because something else seems too pressing, whether to pursue a relationship with an unbeliever or recognize that we light cannot possibly have fellowship with darkness. Friends, this passage reminds us that if we choose to do what God expressly condemns, we are playing a dangerous game. The city of refuge did not admit admit one who set out to kill another, 
Neither did it welcome one who had allowed their emotions to get the better of them. So to Christ is a refuge for penitent sinners, not those who intently and persistently disobey God's commands. Friends, we need to be resolute when we're faced with the choice of whether or not to honour God. The scripture tells us to flee temptation. And if we intentionally choose to do wrong, or if we allow our emotions to overwhelm reason, then we do so at great risk to ourselves. Secondly, in verse 4, we see that the manslayer had to flee to the city of refuge. There were six cities, so one would always be close by. The roads were well kept, but still the manslayer had to run. If you had been in the woods with that axe and had just accidentally killed somebody, would you have waited to watch the next episode of your favourite TV programme before doing anything? Or would you have waited to complete your college assignment? If you realised that the Avenger of Blood was after you, would you have stopped for a chat along the way, along the road? No, you would be running full pelt, wouldn't you, for the city of refuge. Every effort would be put into getting there as quickly as possible. Wouldn't you be looking intently for the right road? Wouldn't you be making sure that you didn't take a wrong turning? Wouldn't you be on the lookout for anything that might trip you up and slow you down? Friends, isn't this how it should be with our faith? Shouldn't every spare drop of energy be focused on fleeing to Jesus, our Saviour? Shouldn't we be taking great care to make sure we're on the right road? Or are you getting distracted along the way? What does the writer of the Hebrews say in Hebrews 12.1? Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus the founder and perfecter of our faith. Well, we've seen the need for a refuge, and we've seen the place for a refuge. So finally, we come to the means of refuge. Let's look at verse 6. And he shall remain in that city until he has stood before the congregation for judgment until the death of him who is high priest at the time. Then the manslayer may return to his own town and to his own home, to the fit town from which he fled. Although the manslayer, you see, was able to find safety in the city of refuge, in one sense, it was a prison. Numbers 35 makes it clear that if the manslayer strayed, Outside the city limits, 
then the avenger of blood could execute him with impunity. So you see, the manslayer didn't go completely unpunished. He remained imprisoned in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. Why might, might you ask, why was this restriction determined by the life of the high priest? Why was it not just a, a fixed term, 10 years or something like that? Well, you may recall that previously when we looked at, num we quoted Numbers 35, 33, and it said, blood pollutes the land and no atonement can be made for the land for the blood that's shed in it, except the blood by the blood of the one who shed it. There's a sense then in which uh, some blood had to be shed to atone for the death of the one who'd been killed, albeit accidentally. Although the manslayer escaped death by fleeing to the city of refuge, someone else had to die to atone for the blood of the one who died. And the one who had to die in this case was the high priest. Although he died through natural causes, once the high priest had died, his death took the place of the manslayer who had fled to the city of refuge. And again, we need to ask the question, don't we? How do we apply this, this passage to ourselves? Do the types or pictures in the narrative point to a greater reality? What or who does the high priest point us to? And again, it points us to the Lord Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Not this time as the avenger of blood executing justice, nor as a saviour offering refuge. This time as the one whose death is a substitute for the death that we should suffer for our sin. And this is confirmed in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where we read of Jesus. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In other words, he became a man. He had to be made like his brothers in every respect. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. To make propitiation for the sins of his people. Now, there are two points of contrast, which I think it's worth noting. When we compare the high priest here in verse 6 of Joshua 20 with the Lord Jesus Christ in his role as high priest. The first is that the high priest in Joshua's day could only atone for the sins of a manslayer, a murderer, or someone who had committed intentional sin had no hope of atonement through the city of refuge. But not so the, high, the Lord Jesus Christ. For in Hebrews chapter 7, Christ's attributes as high priest are examined and is found to be vastly superior to any human priest. In verse 25 of chapter, Hebrews chapter 7, the writer concludes, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost 
those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So then, friends, whatever sin may be troubling your conscience, there is a wonderful assurance, isn't there, that in Christ your sin can indeed be dealt with. The Lord Jesus Christ will take our sin as far from us as the east is from the west. For the Lord Jesus Christ, we're told, is able to save to the uttermost. The second thing to note is that when the manslayer ran to the city of refuge, he had no idea how long he would have to stay there. How long would he be restrained in this prison, as it were? He had to remain there until the, chief, the high priest died. It might have been a few months if the high priest was old or ill or decrepit. But it could have been decades if he was young and healthy and going to go on. But when we think of the Lord Jesus, we don't have to wait for the high priest to die, do we? For he's died already. Crucified on the hill at Calvary, his death provides the propitiation for our sin. The kinsman redeemer, the Goal, died to pay the price for our sin so that we now have no fear of falling into the hands of the Goal Damar, the avenger of blood. If we come and find our refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ, then we don't have to wait for the high priest to die. For we are immediately free when we come and find our refuge in him. Let's pray together. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for uh, your word. We are reminded uh, that your great plan of salvation has indeed been the same yesterday, today, and forever. Lord, we see in uh, the history of the Israelites here types and pictures that point us to the wonderful salvation that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help each one of us, we pray, wherever we are. We are. Uh, for those of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray that as we, as our refuge and as our saviour, we pray that uh, we might meditate upon these truths and be filled with joy and delight. Uh, we pray, Lord, uh, also for those who have not yet fled to the city of refuge. Help them, Lord, we pray, to understand the seriousness, the precariousness uh, of the danger that they're in and help them, Lord, we pray, to flee to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for those of us, Lord, who are struggling with sin along the way, we pray, Lord, that you would help us uh, to be resolved, to keep our eyes fixed upon the Lord Jesus Christ and live for him. So undertake for us, we pray, 
In Jesus' name, amen.